listeners to the Editor's Desk, our regular podcast here at First Things Magazine. And I'm Rusty Reno. I'm the editor of First Things, and I'm at the Editor's Desk. And joining me is Michael Lewis, the, a professor of art history at Williams College and a regular writer for First Things. And he recently, in the June-July issue, contributed a reflection on the work of Christopher Alexander, uh, an article titled Architecture of Repair. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. So Christopher Alexander, um, what, who was this guy? <laughs> he was an architect who didn't think architects were necessary. <laughs> he was a cult figure, and in some circles, he still is a cult figure, who, who is a fascination to two entirely different groups of people, to, to young would-be architects who offers an alternative vision of what architecture could be, but also he's known in the world of computer programmers. He was in on the development of um, computer language from a, a very, very early date. And uh, he's an enigmatic figure. And I, I, you can't summarize him in a, in a few sentences. I think we're going to need our full, our full uh, 20 or 30 minutes to uh, unravel him. Uh, like so many important intellectual figures in the, second half of the 20th century, a refugee from Nazism, uh, Jewish heritage, at least in part, and uh, went, I think, as you say, was uh, was a child, when small child, when he went to England, his, his parents fled to England, and, and grew up and then did his undergraduate studies at Cambridge University in mathematics and physics. And as a reader of Alexander, I got to say the the mathematical, there's a kind of, um, he wrote a piece for us called Making the Garden. And in it, he insists that the connection between God and architecture, this is the theme of that essay, is empirically verifiable. It's a very strange, kind of runs like a leitmotif in his work, this weird sort of toggling back and forth between um, sort of almost a spiritual sense of architecture's mission and this intense mathematical scientific vocabulary. Absolutely. I think, I think that is the core of Alexander. He was a bit of a divided soul. Born in Austria, he comes, as you said, to the United Kingdom at the age of two, 1938, his mother was Jewish. Parents were both classical archaeologists, so he grew up in a household of historical humanism. This this would have been would have been his his cultural background. His parents couldn't travel to any classical sites once once uh, the Anschluss happened, and uh, then the war came. They became school teachers, and the father really wanted Christopher, young Christopher, to be a mathematician. Mm. And so his first degree was in mathematics. And then he did what he wanted to do was take that second degree in, in architecture. And what's interesting is in his early years, he tried to, to make architecture a rational affair that could be handled on mathematical principles. 
very interesting figure in that uh, he began his 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 initial foray into into explaining architecture and this is uh, this is a leitmotif of his entire career he looked he looked as a mathematician would for universal comprehensive explanations of how systems work. Mm-hmm. It was very important for him to, to pull back as far as he could to take into account the working of everything. So he begins trying to, trying to do that on strictly rational mathematical models. I, evidently he, he, developed these computer programs in the fifties early. He was a kind of early figure in in that world to have some sort of calculations to solve architectural problems. It seems kind of crazy. Well, that's right. (laughs) And that is, that is his, his great change that he, he began with an idea of architecture as, as a a purely mathematical, rational enterprise. And then within a couple of years pivoted, to believing that all that mattered in, mattered in architecture was feeling, that is human feelings of well-being, goodness, satisfaction, and and a word that shows up again and again, wholeness. Mm. And but before we we leave mathematics, there's something you have to understand about a mathematician. I, I teach here at a small liberal arts college. I know my colleagues who are in the math department, and and uh, they tell me proudly that mathematicians are either Boy Scouts or pirates. That is, they are are either obedient rule followers, because there's something about the tidiness mm. of mathematics to, to 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 get everything in neat columns. But there is also a certain piratical spirit because if if you've done your mathematical proof correctly, there is no personality involved. You could be as rude or obnoxious as possible, and and you can be. You can be the embodiment of human anarchy, but if you got the formula right, it, it's okay. So they tend to come in two flavors. And the paradox of, of Alexander, he's very much a humanist in what he wrote, but when he stood up the podium to speak, he he rambled in the way that mathematicians do when they're they're performing the silent calculations with no sense whatsoever, uh, whatsoever of elapsed time. He wouldn't generate conversational filler. He's a, he's a fantastic communicator, but uh, people were often baffled when they saw him perform in, increasingly uh, in his life. Hmm. Feeling. That is a, a leitmotif, wholeness, certainly what I've read of him. What, and this, this, um, this comes out in a particularly poignant way in the debate with Peter Eisenman, uh, which you advert to in your article, which caused me to go and, and read the transcript of their debate in is early 1980s, I think. 82. 82. And wow, it, uh, it really is two ships passing in the night. Well, there you see the bluntness of the mathematician. That <laughs> not, he, he was a cultured man, but he, uh, he, he spoke with a kind of blunt straightforwardness you almost never hear in a polite debate. Well, it certainly he, took Eisenman by, a, a bit by surprise. You could tell well, in, the, in the transcript, it takes them a while. The two, the two, um, 
the two lions in the cage sort of circle each other for a while before they actually engage. But the engagement seems to be on this uh, issue. uh, And Eisenman is really very insistent that architecture has to do with ideas. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I I think... I mean, there's many great moments in that debate, and anybody should look it up and read it. Eisenman, who who affiliated himself with the French modern linguistic theorist and deconstructivist, unleashed a barrage of names, Foucault and Derrida, and and Alexander, almost with the naivete of a child, says, um, I don't know, what, what did they say? He didn't really know them. He wasn't interested in them. And this took Eisenman aback. But Alexander kept trying to find common ground. And he said, well, we can, we can agree that something like Chart is beautiful. And at that moment, Eisenman disagreed vehemently uh, and, and a bit obnoxiously saying, well, if you've seen one Gothic cathedral, you've seen them, seen them all. He said he would never enter. He had coffee mm-hmm. at the cafe in front, but refused to go inside. He was prov- deliberately provoking. He, he, was, <laughs> he was getting annoyed, but it really is is a, a, a bracing interaction between two minds pushing each other to work at a higher and higher level, and ultimately, Eisenman suggested that wholeness is not a legitimate goal for our fragmented, alienated world. Yes, it was. And, uh, it's very fascinating. I mean, he th- he accuses um, he accuses Alexander of of presuming an outdated metaphysical vision of man at the center of a unified cosmos, a sort of uh, a world of, that's integrated, and and he sees he sees the sort of post you know after Newton you know Copernicus that you know one can go on and on and on that uh, we live in a in a world that that doesn't add up, um, it doesn't have a, a kind of integrated uh, framework. And uh, and this is where and that architecture is supposed to represent that, to to remind us of it. That that's right. And it disciplines and, us. <laughs> he doesn't yes. say that, but that was my thought. Was Alexander is saying that, as I recall, wholeness. Well, of course, we don't ex- we don't we don't live. I mean, the wholeness is something we seek. It's not something we fully experience now. And architecture is supposed to midwife a greater wholeness for our lives. Whereas Eisenman thinks it should do the opposite. We probably naively think that there's an integrated quality to our lives, but architecture is supposed to be the tutor of reality, which is that it doesn't add up. Right. And this this was appalling to to Alexander, who who believed that an architect had an ethical duty to make, he he, he had lived through some any any refugee from Hitler has dealt with reality. He 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 uh, he was not a, a a naive fool, but he felt this you have an ethical obligation to take this fractured, fragmented world of ours and make it better. He didn't believe that it could be turned into utopia. He was fearful of. Utopia. He saw m- much of the failure of modern architecture was a a very limited utopian vision, but but ultimately he felt that as an architect, your job was to make the world look better, not describe 
the horrors of it, not make them palpable in, in building materials. You know, wholeness, uh, as I was reading the, the, that text and I was trying to, you know, come in my mind's eye. Cause one of the things about Alexander is that, right. Uh, the idea is an enemy of both of feeling and reality. I think it was Ortega y Gasset that says is to, to frame a concept is to betray the real. Uh, I mean, that's a little bit of, I think perhaps an, exa- uh, a mis maybe overstatement, but nonetheless, so he kind of toggled back between insisting Alexander, we have to pay attention to, I think there's from the article he published in first things. I think there's something in there about pay attention to the earth. <laughs> and, and at the same time, one's inner feelings and the ideas and the thinking architecture as a kind of thinking in stone and steel is to both betray the particularity of the earth and the sentiments of the soul. Yes. Yes. His, it's funny for a man who began as a complete, almost disembodied rationalist to end up with a, a tactile understanding of architecture. And as much as possible, he wanted to eliminate the intellectual stage of a building, the formal ideas that generate it. For, for him, the goal was to sit down on a real site with real materials, with real people whose minds weren't, weren't cluttered with Le Corbusier, and solve the problems in sunlight, looking at vistas and views, feeling the air, and using using their fingers that 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 was the goal and so it, but it's what's interesting is he didn't get to that by a kind uh, by a a kind of california guru earth worship he got to it by way of mathematics that to me that's the interesting part he his first serious project after getting his PhD in architecture from Harvard, 1962, was in India, where he built a small school. So right away, he's in a different part of the world where you have to think as, as in the most frugal terms possibly with, with building processes and materials. So his thesis was, uh, was based in part on that experience where he, he tried to calculate mathematically all the considerations that would go into designing to designing as perfectly as possible a new village for 500 or 600 people. And he enumerated every single consideration that was possible. That is the, the, the sacred status of animals, but also the conflicting, the, the conflicting need for there to be rational paths of animals through the village, places for men and women to bathe, daily, but segregated by sex and by age. And this is what he fed into the computer. He showed that some of these 151 considerations were reciprocal. Others didn't affect one another much. And uh, computers were were very expensive then. So he, he worked out the program that could do it most efficiently using the, the, the new computers at night. And once he had done that, he realized you'd you did not need to crunch the numbers. You could solve this abstractly with simple geometric diagrams of of arrows. For for if you, his great example is you're making a vacuum cleaner. 
You want it to be durable. It's a good, so you want sturdy materials, but you want it to be cheap so they can't be too sturdy. So there's a whole interlocking web of reciprocal relationships. But he realized if you diagram them, work out, work out the, the principle uh, reciprocal connections, you, you don't need to feed it into a computer. And that's the, so the, the mathematics drop away. They led him into looking at the pattern, but he realized it could be handled more, uh, more optically and, um, well, actually, in, in a sense, intuitively, you look at look at the diagram, and that's when he realized at that moment, at that moment, here's where the, the mathematics emancipated him from any reverence to pre-existing architectural categories. Mm. Architects are taught to think in terms of typologies, that, that there are certain building types with, 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 certain, with certain inherent properties, museum, theater, church, opera house. But, and then you're also then typically in the modern era, that's supplemented by, you know, a certain ideology, not necessarily in the pejorative sense, but a certain say that, you know, that, you know, that um, the function must be visible or, or the building materials must be transparent to the engineering or, or not, or the opposite, you know, or, or the, or the, we're, we're in a phase now where, where, uh, the display of building materials honestly is frowned upon. Yeah, that's right. So, but you know, so you, yeah, right. You get a uh, typology of different types and then you get, um, you know, a consensus about like, what's the best, you know, overall presentation. And my sense of Alexander is, I mean, if we, I mean, the book we haven't mentioned is a pattern language made a big influence on me when I read it. Although as you point out, one doesn't read it, one flips <laughs> through it. But uh, and I, in fact, I used it for a renovation project in in when I was living in Omaha, to great effect. By the way, it was very liberating, uh, in exactly the way you describe, which is that you have certain puzzles or difficulties, and you you read the section relevant, and it it's like priming the pump, and it lets your intuitions flow much more freely because it liberates you from the notion that how you treat the entry, the back entryway to your kitchen has to somehow ideologically or conceptually dovetail with the entrance hall in the front. You know what I mean? Yes. That yeah. that's yes, yes. You know, that's, are you doing a neo-Palladian? How you know? He says no, no. That's not relevant. <laughs> that's right. The part that got me that the, the the thing that stunned me first was when he talked about a place for waiting. And if you talk to an architect, they think of a waiting room at a, in a dentist's office or at at your accountant's office, but he didn't think in any of those categories. He said a bus stop and the the waiting room in a pediatrician's clinic they have it has the same fun, fundamental identity that you sit. Time passes. You're you're in this terrible passive state where you're bored and apprehensive. So he begins with the human properties of a situation, and that's what the pattern is. And once you see those. Once you see those timeless conditions, you, you no longer start thinking of, do I, do I make a modern room or do I make an arts and crafts one? You, you think of the human needs that preceded architecture. So the, the book is almost a manual of, of a pre-architectural world. And he, I mean, I, there is, a, as I 
mentioned earlier this tension about everything's empirically verifiable, and there's there's a bit of a that in the pattern language volumes. There's a whole bunch of volumes that are associated with this, but there's a tension between that and this fundamental trust in tradition. Yeah, that if you if you just look at the way that that people have dealt with the area of waiting over the centuries. You can glean from that because people have been solving this problem for a long time. I mean, some better than others, but so I I I saw him as uh, uh, I mean, for me, it, maybe I was a traditionalist already when I came into reading him. I found him reinforcing that intuition: the wisdom of the ages is available for the architecture student to learn from, and then adapt and apply in the present moment. That you know. He had he was not a snob about chronology. For him, any human activity is current events in a way. The, the very first shelter for the in the Paleolithic would have been as interesting to him as as hmm. the latest building down the street. And I think that that is what baffled Eisenman in that interview when he rattled off the names of the most fashionable intellectual critics he could muster didn't interest Alexander in, in the slightest. Alexander no. lived in a kind of timeless world. Well, so that's interesting. So you, I mean, I've, I've seen some of your lectures on YouTube as an art historian, and you do, I mean, we're all trained to speak about these styles and, and initiatives in a chronological fashion that, you know, the neo-Gothic emerged and then the this, and then, then the that, and, uh, and he, uh, yeah, now that you mention it, I, I think that's really actually very helpful. There's absolutely no whiff of that at all. Uh, and, yeah. and, and you look, read his stuff and it's just, he toggles back and forth. And, you know, there's the whole history of humanity as an open resource. <laughs> yeah. What about, so in terms of feeling and all that sort of thing, feeling, making the world more comfortable, being at home. He talks about preserving architecture has to preserve uh, the sanctity of life. I think healing environments. That's another one of his phrases. I mean, what it, there is a there is a tradition. I think of Ruskin, Pugin, William Morris, Ralph Adams Cram. There is a there is a. Uh, I mean, he he is. He, I mean, he's eccentric. No question about that. But it's an eccentricity within a kind of stream of cons reparative vision of architecture. Certainly, in terms of engaging the the way in which the industrial revolution had transformed society, how do you repair society when it's rent by these this this economic dynamo? That's yeah, that's right, and that is the tradition you have to put them in if you're taking the wide angle view. Um, 220 some years of the industrial revolution have disoriented our, our society and different responses to it. The Karl Marx's response is the, the social class analysis. Dickens response is this, this literary humanism and, and William Morris's return to the, the, the guilds and workshops of the middle ages. They're all trying to grapple with, with this alien, this alienating, world and and Alexander is in that tradition but there's one other thing to it and that is the remnants of tradition persisted throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century you you 
you still have in in a sense the 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 settled historical landscape of of Europe and 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 America until modernism comes along and modernism the combination the shocks of of two world wars and the depression modernism cuts the last cords that is a great amount of knowledge about building building materials craft simply vanished in the 30s and 40s. And so modernism cleared the slate and it didn't seem to be so bad because it offered us a, a, a new way of finding our, uh, our finding our place in time. And it, would, and it would take into account everything we needed, make, make humane, clean, hygienic cities and recreation and community, all this, and it didn't work. And by the early 60s, that's when it was becoming clear that it didn't work. And that, that's when everything starts falling apart. That's when the social housing projects start to come under critique. That's when Jane Jacobs writes her Death and Life of Great American Cities. So this strange mathematical humanist is there right at the moment when we have, we have lost the old tradition. The new one, which was going to replace it, has failed. And he's in a position now to, to look for answers, and he will look anywhere. And that's why his, I, I, in my essay, I was trying to explain something about him, which I think is his peculiar outsider status. Even though English was his main language, his German, apparently, I've heard from friends, was serviceable, but it, it, he, he had not studied in German, so he didn't have a, a sophisticated German language. He has the curiosity of the perpetual outsider uh, standing apart and looking at the system in action and and fascinated by it, not judging it, the the participant observer. So in in that moment in the early 60s, very special moment, this very special man strode into it. Hmm. And right. So there was a, it wasn't like he was a neo-Gothic or a you know, neo-Renaissance or whatever. It was really, so in that sense, he is a postmodern man, so to speak, in the way that um, whatever future we're going to build, it has to be, it has to be built kind of going more deeply into this kind of fundamental human response to the built world. That's how I read him, at least. Um, and that Eisenman, we got to think our way out of this dead end and Alexander, we have to feel our way out of this dead end. <laughs> well, I would have loved to have seen if, if Alexander had gone to Eisenman's Wexner Center in Ohio, where there are, are stairs that are purposely built to lead up to a dead end. It's a bit of a, of a, of a art, sour architectural joke. And for <laughs> Eisenman, this is precisely what you don't do. Right, right. You end your piece with a quote from a pattern language, which you think is, um, is a lovely uh, epigram and you suggest should be engraved on the thresholds of our schools of architecture, perhaps. And it, it reads this way. When you build a thing, you cannot merely build that thing in isolation, but must repair the world. That's a, one of his wonderful leitmotifs, but must repair the world around it and within it so that the larger world at, at that one place becomes more coherent and more whole, which I think is a, I mean, there is a wonderful spiritual vision there. Well, I, I'm going to propose another 
one. Maybe they go side by side, or or they could be different entrances of the schools of architecture. And this is from his First Things article, Making the Garden, which I strongly recommend to listeners. It's First Things Magazine exists to publish deeply eccentric and idiosyncratic articles like Making the Garden. And here's what he says toward the end of that essay. The capacity to make each brick, each path, each baluster, each window sill a reflection of God lies in the heart of every man and every woman. Mm. And I think it speaks to his, what I take to be his, another leitmotif of his work, which is a fundamental trust in people. Yes, yes. Yeah, not not a speck of of uh, disdain or contempt for the unwashed masses. A great a great human sympathy. There is a spirit of kindness in in ev- everything he he writes. What what an odd duck he was. Uh, I wonder. The question is, I wonder how receptive people will be in a generation with, with, with a figure like this. The question always is, what will remain? I th- no great buildings. No great buildings. Modest, modest houses. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but a great spirit, which is still accessible in, in the, in the writings. He is an author. So maybe an architectural, he's a man that will, I think a pattern language, which is, you know, some people say the most best selling book ever written by an architect. Uh, that that'll endure, I think. Again, as a handbook for some, as a as a as a uh, moment of liberation for others who don't actually use any particular pattern, but are just thrilled by the thought that they can approach they can approach design in such a crazy ad hoc fashion and don't have to have unifying theories. It's a book that you could read at every stage of your life at 10-year intervals and see it with completely different eyes. And mm. there are very few books in that category Indeed. that are like yeast. They keep fermenting in you, and you can keep turning turning back for new inspiration. Well, as I said, I recommend to uh, listeners circling back and reading reading uh, Michael's wonderful remembrance of Alexander Architecture of Repair and then Alexander's uh, uh, fabulous meditation on God and the built world, making the garden. Thanks for your time, Michael, for being on the podcast. My pleasure. 